Welcome to the Swapless Podcast. My name is Brandon Leday. I am Allie. And I am Boomer. And we are three friends who meet over the internet to discuss Star Trek films. I guess that's the theme of the show. Yes, it is what we do. We're going to be on episode 100 soon of this podcast. And I will say that um, at that point, we can probably put a number to it. Like 8% of our episodes are Star Trek episodes or something like that. And But it's so strange that 12% will still be about Cube. oh my god you're right have y'all managed to watch anything non-star trek related in the next last two weeks i can safely say that i have not um unfortunately (laughs) you've been fully assimilated i have been absolutely 100 percent assimilated and you know i'm into it i'm into it i'm fine in the borg um show wise i did I, I'm I'm getting caught up on uh, everybody's favorite depressed Dracula show, uh, Castlevania. But um, yeah, other than that, I haven't really uh, watched a whole lot of movies lately. And as often as I've been losing this battle, I want this to be a movie podcast. So I know, I know. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I, you're still winning. Am I? 90, 98% of our episodes are still about movies. They're just about Cube right? instead. I'm really like tying my own hands behind my back here because like I just talked about sex in the city with Brittany on an episode of this show and I made myself watch the sex in the city movies to justify that even though they're horrible compared to the television program, which is great. I, okay. I I mean, we don't talk about TV shows that much and I was going to say that most of what I've been watching lately is I'm, I'm down to the last three episodes of the Sopranos finally at long last, but I don't. I wasn't really going to get into it. Yeah, sorry, Brandon. We're wasting our cinema brains on TV. I mean, The Sopranos is very cinema-brained, but yeah, it's Scorsese light, right? Yeah, and he not he does not actually appear in one episode, but uh, there is an episode where someone who appears to be him appears, and someone <laughs> he's like getting through the line at a club, and someone's like Kundun. I loved that, which is very funny. Because that's like the most um, not organized crime movie he's ever made. It's about um, <laughs> Tibet. <laughs> and in this most recent season, uh, one of the characters does develop a film called Cleaver, which is in the make of Saw and Hostel, but is about a reanimated mob thug who uh, takes out his... Uh, frustrations on the mob boss leader played by Danny Baldwin in the movie. Um, is that is that a thing? Is that something? I mean, you have my attention. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say that sounds great, but too bad it. Sometimes there's those weird like fake movies that sound so good, and you're like, oh damn it, it wasn't real. It was very strange to me. In an episode, they go to L.A. to try and get Ben, King- ben Kingsley to sign on as the mob boss character. And Lauren Bacall is in it, which is very funny because in Tony's like media room where he has his like sort of home theater set up, there are multiple like uh, movie posters for noir films that had Lauren Bacall in them. And at the end of that episode, Chris assaults her for like her awards show gift tote bag and all of the high priced consumer goods within and every time I watch the show now, I can't stop thinking about the fact that Lauren Bacall was an actual character who got thrown to the ground by one of the main characters. Is that something? 
Is this the thing? Laura Bacall was in movies. Right. It's movie adjacent. I don't I, I I don't think that you should, you know, um give up. And I, I you I, I hope that you continue to fight me every time that we try I was to gonna say, please fight me. Fight me. God, come on. Like I, I you know, I'm not trying to make you make you go gentle into that good night. I, I love what we do here and I think that it should be movie E. I just you know, this this year I've seen more movies than in the past couple of years right now you know this is probably not going to be anywhere near your number brandon but uh this was our, our topic tonight was why 109th movie of the year that i watched and last year i think i only got up to like 80 something and that was you know there's still like a month left so you never know i've noticed that i'm actually down on new releases this year like I've seen about 80-something new releases so far this year, where around this time, I'm usually at about 100 and something. Right. But I think it's because I've been prioritizing going to the theater more than watching stuff on my couch. Yeah. And lately, there's just been more repertory stuff around town that excites me than like ever before. So like a lot of the slots for, like, I need to go out and go see a movie and get out of the house has been filled by something that came out in the 80s or 70s. So my numbers are down too, you know. I'm not, I'm not putting out as much product as I used to. Well, well we're not product movies as for one we thing. Were, <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say, are there as many movies as there have been that we've been excited about? Because like that, that just kind of like, and I hate to be like, oh, no movies came out this year, but like, you know, we had Barbie and you know a few others, but like. I will not have a problem filling out my top 20 list. This yeah, year. yeah. There's plenty of great Nor will I. Oh, I yeah. know. I'm just saying that, like, it seems like for the last, like, few months, you've just been like, there's nothing out. And I've been like, yeah, it does kind of seem that way right now. Well, on either end of the summer, there's always a bad lull. Yeah. Like, right when the summer starts, there's, like, superhero blockbuster season that's, mm-hmm. like... Technically, there's tons of stuff out. It's just not of interest to me. Right. Yeah. Like when I was there and we could not go to the movies together because there was nothing playing that either nothing. of us wanted to see. Yeah. And then at the end of the summer, there's that lull before the Halloween horror movies start. And that's when the ball gets rolling. It's like around Halloween, there's like a little influx of horror. And then right after that, tons of like serious movies for adults Yeah. Uh, in that final quarter of the year, which is what we're sitting in the middle of right now. I yeah. saw one. What'd you see? I went and saw Anatomy of a Fall. Exactly that. Yeah, it, and that is exactly that. Although it does have this very strange, like, marketing gimmick where for the last, like, five seconds before the movie actually starts, it flashes the URL didshedoit.com <laughs> with the expectation that after the movie, you will go home and vote on whether or not she did it, um, which is a very strange thing for such a prestige picture. I wrote about that in my review, but, like, you know, that went up last week and it's very good. I enjoyed it very much. I was sitting in the movie theater for the first 20 minutes going, oh, no, I think I'm going to be very bored by this. Um, it made me think of me and Brandon's ongoing discussion of Tar and how that is exactly the kind of prestige movie that bored the hell out of him last year and that I loved. And I was like, oh, no, is this going to be my Tar where it's like a prestige picture that is boring me to tears? But then once the inciting incident actually happens and it converts into more of its um, courtroom drama sort of plot narrative that it occupies for the rest of the film, 
I was really on board with it. Um, for our viewers who, uh, viewers, oh my God, <laughs> for our listeners who uh, aren't familiar, Anatomy of a Fall won uh, the Palme d'Or this year at Cannes. It is a movie about a German woman who was living with her French husband in his sort of childhood home um, in rural France in the mountains. And they have a son who was blinded as a child um, uh, around age four because of the husband leaving um, him with a not particularly adept caretaker in order for him to pursue one of his literary goals. And in fact, he has sort of um, been unable to attain even a modicum of the same literary success that his wife has. She is unhappy living in this like sort of falling apart house where despite the fact that she's published several novels, they still have constant money problems. Uh, the husband is teaching. He has chosen to homeschool their son so that he can spend more time with him, but also resents the fact that you know, even though that was his choice, um, his wife has continued to be more successful and is the primary breadwinner because of her literary success. And the film opens with um, him off screen trying to cause trouble for her while she is giving an interview to a young woman who is a student of her work um, and is doing sort of her thesis on uh, the main character's novels. Uh, and then we never actually even see him before his body is found. Whenever the son returns from a walk with his uh, constant companion and seeing IDOC. And then the film becomes a discussion both of like literary strategy in the face of innocence, where Sandra, our main character, is insistent that she, you know, didn't perform any ill will, that she did not kill her husband. She believes it was an accident, but her lawyer uh, convinces her to pursue the possibility that um, Peter committed suicide uh, simply because that is the more legally defensible position. And so the quote-unquote anatomy of the fall is about how did he possibly fall from this house to land on the ground uh, and die in the way that he did. And there's a lot made of certain pieces of forensic evidence, like stray blood drops that would seem to indicate that he was struck while standing on an upper floor. But there's also um, reasonable doubt that's introduced through the way that he might have actually fallen from the open window that he was working on, or even thrown himself off, hit the woodshed, and then fallen. And the film really hinges on what the child believes happened. Since he didn't see what happened, there's a lot of time devoted to, okay, well, there was an argument between his parents, and then he went on this walk. Is it possible that he could have heard the argument that they had? Is it possible that as he claims he heard them speaking calmly, could he have done so with the music playing loudly as it was at the time? And that sort of thing. And it plays a lot with your perception. There's a lot of it is a shot in a very documentarian style where there's even a moment where it draws attention to itself where the judge who is presiding over the case uh, is, you know, someone comes up and whispers in her ear and she leaves sort of the dais um, and the film, like the, the camera follows her and then gets back to her seat as if a cameraman who is observing this trial um, was just following the action and then resettled back into where their frame of reference should be. 
Uh, but then some of these flashbacks that we see, including fights between the main character and her husband, um, things that happened in their past, other instances, uh, are they fil- on, do we actually see them? Does that mean something about their truth? Whenever we just hear audio and we're left to um, believe what the characters are telling us happened in the audio that we're hearing, is there a reason that we don't see that in that flashback that just ended? Why does it end before they start to tell what happened? And so it really plays with your concept of um, testimony, of uh, eyewitness ability. It's really good. I would give it a big recommendation. I can see why it was such a winner this year. I liked uh, the director's first movie, Sybil. Or maybe I don't know if that was her first, but I think it was her last big one before this. Um, so I'm interested in it. I will say something about the ambiguity of not being able to fully tell what happened and like it raising questions it deliberately doesn't answer in order to provoke you does sound a lot like what I was frustrated by in Tar, which was like this like phony Rorschach test where it was both like um, a treatise on cancel culture and also like a satire making fun of people who are afraid of cancel culture or, you know, it was both about this abusive egomaniac, but also a celebration of her, you know, brash truthfulness in a time where everyone's too sensitive to say what they're really thinking. Uh, yeah. There's just a way that like tar plays both sides and never actually settles on anything. And it's just like, well, I'm just asking questions in a way that like really bothered me. Uh, it sounds like the ambiguity of this maybe is more purposeful and is about like the ambiguity of our memory and it's more of like getting to how facts are kind of loose and hard to pin down after an event. So like maybe there's like it's more of like a purposeful thing and less of like a political provocation in the way the tar was. Yeah, I, I, this one is very purposeful. And some of the things that I like are that, you know, whether you believe she did it or not is pretty irrelevant. You know, it's it's not like an episode of. I mean, it's propaganda, but like if you imagine Law and Order, you know, you're supposed to believe that uh, Jack McCoy is fighting the good fight and he's putting these bad people behind bars. And when you're watching it, you are invested in seeing justice done. In this, it's that's not as important as like how the trial affects people, how trials affect lives. And even like uh, if you do think she did it, you're never really on the side of the prosecutor either because he's such a like all cops are bastards applies to prosecutors too and in this case this man is taking too much pleasure in his attempts to convict a woman on very very loose evidence like very little evidence at all and very ambiguous evidence at that and then he tries to pull in even at one point he like it's like i'm going to read from one of your novels And he reads a section uh, told from the point of view of a woman who has been driven to the point of murder by her husband without introducing the context that like that character is not the protagonist of that novel. It's simply a different point of view character who uh, has no real similarities to the author. But the way that trials and trial lawyers can really try and narrow the window of reasonable doubt on someone when that window exists to make sure that the innocent aren't punished. Um, I know that like our justice system is different from the French justice system in some ways, but 
that was what it said to me. I need to see it. Sounds like there's a lot to chew on. I, I, you know, big recommend for me, especially if you can see it on the big screen. Just don't don't drink too much. Don't get like a big slushy and go see this. <laughs> That's my my recommendation. Uh, Brandon, what have you been watching? You know, serious dramas for adults, <laughs> as you do at this time of year. I'm I'm waiting for the reveal where you're like, I watched an, the the WWE monster movie sequel. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's the area of uh, cinema where I feel more confident speaking on it. You know, uh, <laughs> I feel like more of an authority when I'm talking about like the Jetsons meets SmackDown or whatever. Um, <laughs> I saw this movie called Limoncita, um, which I'm pronouncing with kind of a Spanish tilt, even though it is an Italian title. It stars Penelope Cruz as this like bored housewife in 70s Italy. She has an abusive businessman husband who like leaves her and her kids alone for like large stretches of time. And when he comes home, he's like a terror and everyone tenses up. Also, her oldest child is a trans boy. In the 70s, so no one really has the language to deal with what's happening as he's like asserting his new identity um, and changing his name. Everyone who is outside the family and comes over and sees this child for the first time, like uses the correct pronouns until they're quote unquote corrected by everyone who already knows him. You know, it's like one of those things where it's like so obvious to everyone else that that's a boy, but like inside the family, they're stubborn to adjust. What's interesting about the movie is. A, Penelope Cruz is dressing in gorgeous 70s fashion from Italy. Every scene just impeccably made up. Like, one of the most gorgeous people alive. And she offers to her kids this, like, twee escapism from the sort of boredom and abuse of the household, which is that she sort of arranges these sort of song and dance breaks from reality where they'll kind of do, like, bedroom choreo around the apartment it kind of devolves into parodies of famous Italian broadcasts of pop songs. So like, even though we did not grow up in Italy in the seventies, we would recognize some of these songs. There's that one that's like, you know, that song that's like an Italian spoof of American pop. So it's like a long string of nonsense. Yes. Yes. Supposed to sound like yes. English. So they do that song a couple times. Um, and you know, pop tunes like that, like stuff you would recognize it's famous enough that it translates culturally. Um, I'm mentioning this movie because it's pretty good and it's got these like transcendent moments, but it kind of feels like what I end up wasting a lot of my time on as I do best of the year catch up where it's like, there's not that much to it in its best moments. It feels like an Almodovar movie or an early Celine Sciamma movie, especially like tomboy or water lilies or something like that. But like, it never feels like its own thing. You know, it doesn't have its own like style in its own visual language. It's kind of like an amalgamation of like what smart film festival circuit cinema is supposed to look and feel like. And then I went to the theater and saw the new Sofia Coppola movie, Priscilla. And that put that frustration into like even starker relief because if anybody knows how to make a beautiful drama about boredom and abuse, it's Sofia Coppola. Like she takes the same subject where this is like an adaptation of Priscilla Presley's autobiography and she's talking about her early years like basically as a 14 year old teenager being purchased as a doll by elvis presley and like dressed up to look like him and his mother and just to sit on a shelf in his house while he goes around having sex with people he 
sees as an adult because he basically married a child. They have like one child together, so she's there for like procreative reasons, but not really seen as like a sexual being or an adult in his eyes, and more just like an object that he owns. She's like part of the furniture in Graceland more than she is like a person. And that fits so well thematically with Sofia Coppola's best movies. Um, I'm thinking of Virgin Suicides and Marie Antoinette specifically. Um, she does a lot of the, her same tricks from those movies. Um, there's a lot of the same gorgeous, aggressively girly set designs with like anachronistic modern pop music overlaid on top of it. Um, and these like long, beautiful montages of like what oppressive boredom looks like especially when you're a sexually frustrated teenage girl. So it's just refreshing to see those two movies back to back to be like, oh, I do know brilliance and auteur artistic control when I see it. You know, like, Limoncita is also about boredom and being trapped in a house and not being allowed the freedom to be yourself. And it just doesn't have the same potency or personality to it. What I'm shocked by, I guess, out of that, combo is that Priscilla ended up being one of my favorite movies I've seen all year which I guess I shouldn't be that surprised by because I do like Coppola when she's at her best it's just I've been so um kind of dismissive I guess of like serious dramas for adults as a as a genre that like I'm much more likely to champion like low budget horror movies than I am a famous director making a biopic for a studio where actors are impersonating celebrities you know like this sort of Oscar play is usually something I'm like, yeah, yeah, that's fine. You know, that was a, a smart movie. I'm glad there's space for it, but that's not for me. You know, that's not my personal passion. Um, so it was kind of nice to be hit with one like square in the heart where like I was soaring through most of this movie. I think it's really well done. I do. I did hear that she pulled no punches by like showing an hour of courtship and then Priscilla graduates from high school. Oh, yeah. Also, really prankish, I think, is. The casting where Jacob Elordi is well over a foot taller than Kaylee Spaney. It's like the two of them standing next to each other. It's like an adult man standing next to a child. Wonderful. You didn't have to wait that full hour to get that like poisonous pushback on Elvis. And, you know, even though the movies are probably made in tandem and not, it's not like a response to the Boslerman Elvis extravaganza from last year. Cause it was probably made around the same time. Right. Um, it is a nice antidote to that movie where like, that movie is a superhero film about Elvis as an American icon. This is a somber drama about what it means to be purchased by somebody like that. Oof. And then yeah. molded in his image. All right. Yeah. Sounds heavy, but also I definitely agree that like when Sofia Coppola is good, she's so good. I put it among her best. Honestly, I, those are my favorite three movies from her. Yeah. And Maria Antoinette is like big up there. So. to break the encryption codes will not be successful, nor will your attempts to assimilate me into your collective. Brave words. I've heard them before. From thousands of species across thousands of worlds since long before you were created. But now, they are all Borg. I am unlike any life form you have encountered before. The codes stored in my neural net cannot be forcibly removed. You are an imperfect being, created by an imperfect being. Finding your weakness is only a matter of time. Picture it. It's early November, 1996. You are nine years old. 
just this past summer, you spent uh, the days while your parents were at work being babysat by a family that owned all of the original series Star Trek films on VHS, and you've now seen every one. The next generation has been in syndication on NBC 33 and out of Baton Rouge ever since then, and you've watched it every day after school. And now there's a new movie coming out, and that movie is Star Trek First Contact. Your parents take you out to eat at Ralph and Kaku's, oh and then God. you head over to the movie theater, and you watch Star Trek First Contact at age nine, and it warps your brain. Uh, warps? <laughs> yeah. Uh, no pun intended. Uh, this film is the second feature film to feature the cast of Star Trek The Next Generation. Um, it is the first one to feature them alone without any cast members from the original series. It came out two years after the previous film, Generations, which was sort of the bridge between the original series cast films and these new films to be star, uh, to star the Next Generation cast. In this film, the Borg, the cybernetic menaces who were the primary antagonists of Next Generation, and to an extent later Voyager, uh, send a cube to Earth uh, in order to travel back in time and prevent the historic first warp flight by beloved 21st century scientist Zephram Cochran, therefore ensuring that humanity never makes first contact with the first alien species that they did in the early uh, 21st century, in the mid-21st century, rather. And the Enterprise, being present, is able to follow them back in time and tries to stop them from preventing this major historical event from taking place. Uh, and along the way, Picard must confront the fact that he was once uh, kidnapped, assimilated, and um, completely transformed by the Borg in a way that has uh, he's never really processed or come to terms with. Uh, the rest of the crew faces the fact that our heroes in history are not always the people we expect them to be or want them to be or sometimes even need them to be. And Data... Uh, is tempted by uh, the newly introduced Borg Queen uh, to give up his family, his friends, his crew, in exchange for giving him what he has always wanted, which is to be human. When I first appeared on the podcast back in 2019, uh, it was because Brandon and Brittany were doing an episode about um movies that came about as the result of being spun off from TV shows. I'm my own worst enemy. Yeah, oh I mean God. you did this first. You you <laughs> committed the original sin. Oh my you God. plucked that pomegranate from the tree of knowledge. <laughs> I got to travel back in time and fix this now. Yeah, oh no, you do. but then <laughs> but but the boomers never got to be destroyed. on. But yeah, we we talked about DeKath and Kim Code, and you and Brittany talked about the um, Downton Abbey movie that had just come out. We talked about Wrath of Khan. And then the next year in quarantine, that's when you reached out to me and asked if I wanted to start doing these Lanyap episodes with you. And I went ahead and had you watch Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home. And then in 2021, we watched Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country, which I you have um, revealed you remember nothing about, and that hurts me deeply hey, in my core. I distinctly remember Kim Cattrall's, Kim Cattrall's haircut. haircut. I'm sorry. I, you remember one thing about the undiscovered country. Okay, but it's a good haircut. Yeah, it, it is a great haircut. And that was before I watched Sex in the City, so I really deserve bonus points for remembering that. 
All right. Well, I, I I'll, I'll let the tally keeper know. I'll pull up my my spreadsheet here, where I'm keeping the the points, um, keeping score. Uh, you're still you're still way uh, ahead of everyone else because of the number of publications you've made. So you have a runaway lead as far as that goes. <laughs> um, and then last year, you know, Ali and I did just a Star Trek specific episode, but it was always my goal to watch the good Star Trek movies one a year, and we did not do that this year. Uh, or last year, rather. So this year, I wanted to make sure that we did not miss out on doing um, Star Trek First Contact, which is, I would say, in many ways, probably probably the last great Star Trek movie. You know, there's the whole even odd rule, and we've gotten into that before, and I won't I won't belabor it with my Galaxy Quest theory again. Um, but I, I do want to know, Brandon, uh, Ali, I, 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 I assume that I know your thoughts on this movie, but... Yeah. Out of the gate, I want to. I want to know, Brandon. What did you think? Well, I mean, it's not a series I particularly care about. So, what I think about each individual one will get thinner over time. I believe. I think this is a good one, though. It's it's not the Voyage Home, which was my favorite one that you've made me watch. It's everybody's and the favorite, one I retain the most from. And that's yeah, the one that, great. that one is the one that has the greatest mainstream appeal, and I, I understand why it's the one that's best known outside of the fandom. And I understand why, you know, you personally like it. It's a great movie, even for people who don't know anything about Star Trek. Yeah, well, I think that's what makes it a good movie is that it's good outside of the show. Yeah. This movie is dependent on some familiarity with Next Gen, um, which I did grow up with. I, I mean, to reveal my dark origin story, my stepfather is a Trekkie. And uh, we used to go to the theater a lot only to see sci-fi movies and only to see Star Trek usually. Um, like that was, that was ones we did not miss, you know, anytime there's a new Star Trek movie out in the theater. So I very likely saw this one. Um, and as I was watching it, I actually remembered you and I talking about what Star Trek I was fond of. And I thought that nemesis was the one where data is like turned evil. Um, it's actually this one that I was remembering. Um, so I'm glad, you know, at least from you picking this, I've saved us the pain of watching nemesis, which seems universally loathed by everyone yeah. so i was at an estate sale last summer where they had all of the dvds in the garage and you could fill up a brown paper bag for five dollars as much as you wanted they had nemesis and i did not take it <laughs> okay so let's get back to it for a second to what i was saying about voyage home right it works fine on its own without much familiarity with star trek it's basically like a fish out of water comedy about space aliens in San Francisco. And like the culture clash is the joke. And I think anybody would get it. This movie falls a little more into the movie sequels to TV show format that we were just talking about. Um, like with Kath and Kim and Downton Abbey, where it's like the continued adventures of these characters you love. The format of that is a little ropey sometimes where it's like it's almost like a soap opera thing where it's like you have to give every character that everyone loves their own moment and check in with them periodically and kind of like take turns one at a time with their like overlapping storylines so in this movie in particular i think there's like three tracks there's the characters on the planet with james cromwell yes as Zephram Cochran, which is definitely a Zendaya as Michi <laughs> details to me. Um, and I think that's kind of the one that is the least important to the movie. Like mm. that is important to people who care about Star Trek lore and the history of the Federation and, you know, 
those characters are basically just given something busy to do that has something to do with like Star Trek as a concept. When you start to get into what the movie's actually about, I think it's the other two storylines. You have Picard's conflicted self, um, who's sort of like fighting his own vengeful fury um, in responding to this Borg threat, where he's like going overboard and not just thinking like a captain. He's thinking like someone with a personal vendetta to settle. Right. And um, that's interesting and has something to do with like the assimilation, you know, through line that's supposed to tie all this together. And then Data's story, where he's tormented by Alice Krieg as the Borg Queen um, on this table. And it's basically like a room full of like space vampires who are trying to turn him. I, I, would, I would call them more zo- zombie-like. But yeah, because like, this, uh, this, this I think of as almost being like a zombie movie. Yeah, but like, okay, space vampires as a concept are from a time when like zombies and vampires are... Kind Very of overlapped. Similar, yeah. Okay, I'm not I won't die on this semantic hill. <laughs> and it isn't even like punctured in the neck as yes, like a turn. He is. So I don't know. I think the iconography's there. Okay. All right. You know what? I'll I'll give you that. And I think that's the strongest of the stories and like the one that actually is the movie. Like the um, convincing and the seduction of this character who wants to be human, even though he's a machine. And then being swayed away from that and being told, you know, you're thinking small, become part of this bigger machine, and I'll I'll make you feel things in your body that you've never felt before. It's weirdly sexy. Oh, and very intentionally so. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. She, like, blows on his skin and, like, little hairs raised for the first time in his life. The horniest of Star Trek, honestly. Oh, my God. It's right up there. My my buddy Danny, who is not a Star Trek person either, who watched this movie with us, at the end, he was like you know what? Data's having like the best day. He got to nut. He (laughs) saved the world. Who's the real winner here? I should note too that, uh, do y'all know Kate LaCour? She's like a local cartoonist. I don't think so. Maybe She does like really intense biological sketches. Um, she also does taxidermy now, but, um, her last zine that she gave me, uh, at this festival we just tabled at was, um, called Borgasm. And it was all Borg people like sucking and fucking each other. Amazing. Oh, giant <laughs> I, I love that. I mean, for That's the incredible. for the people who enjoy that. Um, <laughs> it, it is well, like Giger was cited as an influence for this visually. And so you can yes. see that. Okay, so where I'm going with this is story-wise, I think that the data stuff is the core of the movie. And the further you get away from that, like it becomes more about the TV show. So like Picard's backstory with the Borg still, you know in line with what the movie is, but it, it does reference extra textual material. And then the third James Cromwell thing is almost purely extra textual. It's about the TV show and not about the story at hand. And what I will say though, is that even though I feel like there are sections of this movie that are very TV like and very episodic and almost soap opera and like having to check in on every one of these characters you love and give like, I don't know who this lady is. Uh, there's like that woman who has like a drunken flirting. Um, That's counselor Troy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the love of my life. <laughs> sure. My favorite uh, character also. They have to like shoehorn in a five minute segment for her to have something to do, you know, and it works, That's but it's the story of Troy's life basically, unfortunately. That is true. <laughs> but even though it does have like TV style storytelling in that way, I will say director Jonathan Frakes, who was one of the actors in the crew does a lot visually to distinguish it from the TV show. Yes. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of free floating camera work, a lot of gel lights, a lot of like 
just tilting and swirling and a lot of action. The show's not about action. The show's about no. theory and like um, talking out politics. It's not about you know laser fights in space, which is probably what I would have been more excited about as a kid. So yeah, I I respect it for trying to make it a movie, even though it has a lot of duty as a TV show episode. Hmm. All right. So I, I, I think to my, my first thing that I want to point out is that Voyage Home, which is your favorite, that one is to me, the one that I feel also does the most as far as like checking in and making sure that every cast member has something to do. I think it's the most successful at it. But when we're talking about it as a detriment in this film, I think that that's one of the finer qualities of Voyage Home is that Uhura gets a moment and Scotty gets to do the thing with the computer and Sulu gets to fly the helicopter and everybody has something to do, even if it's just getting caught and then having to be rescued from a hospital. And this film, it does have that as an element. I think it's not as successful. And there are definitely some people who are left out in the cold, especially Troy and Crusher. Uh, Troy, who you mentioned, and Crusher after... Uh, Lily, Alfre Woodard's character, escapes from sickbay, basically becomes just like an occasional um, exposition deliverer to her. The other thing is that I would say is that I think the knowledge that you need to have of this show is probably not as high as maybe it seems. You know, whenever we started watching it, our friend Caitlin was like, okay, should we explain to Danny who the Borg are? And we tried to do that very briefly. But I think that that's all you really need to know. Um, There were a couple of times where it seemed like there was going to be too much exposition given to him by us outside of the movie. And I was like, this is a movie that I watched when I was nine years old. And I had only seen like some episodes of the show. And I followed the plot. Like it, I think that it's really... Um, as far as the details that you need, it gives them to you and gives them to you in the proper amounts and times even where you sort of get the implication that Picard was uh, kidnapped by the Borg at the very beginning. But then whenever it's actually integral for you to understand where his character is at in the moment is when he tells Alfre Woodard's character about it. You know, other than that, I think that it gives you all of the details that you would need from the show you know, data's emotion chip, that sort of thing, to where this one is, I think, the most accessible for the general public right behind Voyage Home. I did find it very accessible. I just didn't have a reason to care about the founding flight of the Federation because I don't care about the show. Which is interesting because but everyone in the future not, is dead. It's not that much part of the show, honestly. Like, in the show, yeah. that's just kind of like a side historical detail. So it's funny that that's the aspect that you think of as like, being real part of the show i guess well it's like uh the reason you go see episode one of star wars is because you want to see what darth vader was like as a kid before he became evil like yeah that doesn't have any bearing on star wars really but you would only be interested in it if you were interested in darth vader's backstory i completely disagree though because i think that your investment in it it's like it's like back to the future you don't know Marty. You don't care about Marty in 1985. He's not your friend. But when he goes back in time and is erased from existence, you care about that narrative. Well, if that was the movie, then sure. But that's not what the movie's about. Uh, okay. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, that's a whole separate film. Like, the movie has to split itself between so many characters that it's like split its plot in half. So, like, the launch to save everyone from becoming Borg feels so separate from the actual seduction of becoming a Borg. Yeah, I, I could see that. 
the scene to scene stuff with data is probably like 10 minutes of screen time where like you could probably make a much better film. That's just a small story about that. Okay. Where that actually has room to breathe and build atmosphere and not be like chopped up check-ins on where he is in his progress of being seduced by the evil Alice Krieg. Uh, Brandon just wants Borg porn is what he's saying. I mean, literally, yes. Give me Borgasm the movie. I mean, that's when I was the most invested. That was when I was most like, ooh, what's going on here, you know? So there's something for everyone here. Yeah, that's both a good thing and a problem, maybe. Yeah. So I want to say about Jonathan Frakes as a director, there were moments in this one, I I think that the planet side stuff, the Earth side stuff, is the most TV-like, I will say. Yes. Because there is the scene where they're all gathered at the telescope, where they're showing Zephram Cochran the Enterprise in orbit in order to prove to him that they are who they say they are in order to get him on track to conduct this historic flight where as it cuts to each person delivering dialogue, they take like three steps up to their mark and then deliver it. And that has a very TV like quality. So I think this was the first time watching it that I really noticed that element of it. Cause it does it. It's like you, like you were saying, it's so distinct from the show visually and stylistically that it doesn't just feel like an episode of the show even though occasionally those scenes do feel like they were directed by someone with mostly television directing directing experience which was the case i think this was his first feature and it's really well made for a first feature like we i think that that's something that we talk about a lot where we're like this person really hit it out of the park the first time um this looks and feels like a movie other than the occasional bits like that. It's definitely the spaceship interiors where you're like really goes off. Oh, these spaceship interiors are so fun in this. Oh my God. Yes. Especially the opening with Picard and the Borg cube is basically like precognitive of the matrix by like several years. Right? Like mm-hmm. must've been an influence on the, the nerds, the Wachowskis who made that oh. like uh it looks just like Neo in the pod. No yeah. doubt on that one. Yeah. I love that exterior sequence. Like there's a lot of great action sequences in this one, which is another reason that I think it's accessible. I think that the franchise learned the wrong lesson from this as they demonstrated again in Insurrection and then Nemesis and to an extent the J.J. Abrams movies and like how action oriented those are. Mm-hmm. But this one, uh, I really like the action sequences here. Um Danny was surprised that this movie came out in 1996 during that opening um, battle sequence with the Borg cube. He was like, wow, this looks great. And it is because it's right in that line between the use of model work and CGI, where they're using real physical models that are just like accentuated and then, you know, given more detail and, and stuff by the CGI. And it looks great still. Like we watched this in 1080p and it was, it looked great. There is something kind of like disappointing about the idea that you could go anywhere in time and space on these spaceships and they take us to Montana. It's like, <laughs> all the stuff in space looks fantastic. But um, like you were saying, like there's something kind of pedestrian about the earthbound section of it. I That um, exterior sequence where Picard, Worf and Lieutenant Hawk fight the Borg on the deflector dish is like really, really spectacular, I think. Um, yeah. It's a little slower than I remember. Uh, and I, I've watched this movie like 50 times. But sometimes when you're watching it with someone who it's their first time, you become more aware of the flaws because you're kind of like, 
especially when it's something you love as much as I love this and you want to be ready to defend anything that someone perceives as a flaw in it. Yeah, you're going to be like, will they like it? Oh, no, there's this that happens. Yeah, Uh I've been there. Right. I ran out of the theater of this movie when I was a child. I got so scared during the Borg assimilation sequences. It's the sequence you were just mentioning, Brandon, where one of the Borgs uses their like nanotube injectors in that ensign's neck and he's like transforming and you can see like the Borg veins forming (laughs) under his skin. That scared the hell out of me as a kid. One of the funniest moments in the movie unintentionally because like he begs for death and Picard immediately shoots him. him. Yeah. Which is funny because like Picard was infected and turned and came back. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know. There's just something really funny about him immediately mercy killing someone for something that he has proven you can recover from. Yeah, it's interesting. The whole recovering from the Borg plot in Next Gen didn't make too much sense to me because eventually you do get seven of nine but anyway that's a show thing uh, yeah we uh, yeah you know we won't do it, it does seem it doesn't seem to be that they assume it's possible to do it more than once especially because uh, just to get into show stuff for a second he was had only been assimilated for like a couple of days yeah and at this point in time you know with them having to save the future and not being able to, you know, um, it's a cold calculus that they couldn't afford another Borg drone that they would have to fight while trying to do that. <laughs> yeah. It's just funny, like, the only information I have is that you can come back from this. Like, because I know that the main character has done that. So it's just funny to, like, see him immediately waste somebody. Oh, Fair yeah. Enough. And, like, for him to be like, if you see someone, kill them. You're doing them right, a right, right. And you're like... Uh, Picard. You're walking around, bud. Picard. Right. I am. I'm a little saddened to hear uh, how disappointed you were that we spent time in Montana, which that's part of the fun. (laughs) uh, That's part of the fun of of Star Trek is that it recognizes that the world does not just exist or like the world does not just consist of major cities. Like important stuff happens everywhere. I hope it happens in, you know, Kirk's born in Iowa and Broken Bow is where the, uh, like first Klingon landing is and blah, 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 you know? And it makes sense because that is where nuclear missiles are kept. And that's the Mm -hmm. point is that, you know, it's this nuclear weapon that has been converted into something that ushers in an era of peace. And coincidentally, it's cheaper to film there. I guess that's true. And every, I mean, it it also makes it very cheap if it's after world war three and everyone's just dressed (laughs) in brown vests. And uh, wa- okay. mucking around in the mud. I loved the thing where they were like, okay, get us uh, late 21st century clothes. And then suddenly they're just like a bunch of people from Portland. And I'm like, Thomas, I feel like if there were time travelers here, I would never know. <laughs> oh my God. Data in his 90s clothes looks like the most dirtbag, failed stand up. Right. 90s, like fucking right. Walking HPV case. Uh huh. <laughs> <laughs> like that was the takeaway from that as like oh my god like some of these are good looks but some of these like I said like I wouldn't know if someone in Portland's a time traveler they could just come up to me and tell me they're from the late 20th century and I would believe them yeah Beverly just looks like a woman who lives in Joshua Tree yeah she's you know she's just where she's like yeah she just looks like she goes hiking and picks up a, a lot of medicinal herbs out there yeah I want to shout out, um, if we're going to just name actors real quick, 
one of the biggest laughs I got as well was um, Adam Scott having like a 20 second scene as like yes. a no name actor in this movie. Yes. yes. It is so firmly in line with his storyline on Party Down. Like that is a Henry Pollard role for him to like have a 20 second clip in a Star Trek movie. Uh, and like him thinking that's his big break and then his career goes nowhere. Like that is so funny to me. Uh, I watch TV. I, yeah. I watch his TV. And it has a cameo from uh, the doctor from Voyager, who yeah. was the character that I was actually dressed as when I met Robert several members of this cast um, at right. GalaxyCon a couple months ago. Um, yeah, Robert Picardo, good actor just generally who just appears in things. I, I, I want to circle back on this, though, which is that I, I'm kind of disappointed in your lack of interest in the planet side plot, because what I think is really like the thing that's become most interesting to me as I've seen this movie so much as I've gotten older is how much it is about the importance of not vindicating uh, the way that history warps individual people into being icons and how you should never meet your heroes and you know how this person who is revered as one of the greatest scientific minds who ushered in a new era of peace for the entire galaxy is just like a guy who wants to retire to a tropical island and like live amongst topless women and that's such a fun idea to me that I'm I'm surprised you didn't really enjoy that Brandon I'm not saying I didn't enjoy it. I'm just saying it's besides the point. It's not the movie that I'm watching. It's like, it's tacked on, you know? It's like an episode of TV that they grafted onto this movie. I also okay. cannot <laughs> think of a better, like, ambassador to Earth than someone who is like that. That was my thoughts on it. I was like, you know what? It makes sense to have, it's for that person to be the person that is uh, first contact. Is uh, this guy who just wants to, like... Hang out with topless women forever. That sounds like his hometown is listed as Margaritaville instead yeah, of Yeah, exactly. Like this sounds like somebody from Earth to me. I don't know. It's kind of like a goofy source of humor a lot too. Like they give him the titular line of all of Star Trek. Uh, that is yeah. true. A very goofy moment. So, so um, good though. There's a lot of drunk TV acting that's like just goofy pantomime and like kind of people just sort of you know hanging out and waiting for an event to happen while the real story is happening off planet. All right. <laughs> also, like if you're going to offer me Montana or San Francisco as a location to go to, I'm always choosing the city. I'm a city boy. Okay. All right. I see what you're saying there with the comparison. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I guess it probably is cheaper to film there. I love its verdancy though. Yeah. It's going to sound like I'm more down on the movie than I am by complaining about that stuff like this is a fun movie it's got a lot of jokes like uh, the borg talk about assimilating people a lot and then um during one of the final battles someone delivers an arnold schwarzenegger style it's, assimilate this it's wharf when he shoots the deflector dish yeah yeah pretty funny yeah he's got that borg tube arm tube thing like wrapped around his spacesuit <laughs> oh, as a tourniquet yes. after it got so cut so fucking good it's yeah, he's out there on the dish and he pulls out his like Klingon sword. I love it. Yeah, I kept thinking, I was like, this is why knives are always useful. This is what I'm probably planning for the future with all my knives I have just sitting around. <laughs> and back in Montana, um, Troy's drunk acting is kind of fun and flirty. Um, the way she keeps whipping her hair around had me laughing, and Data's like over talking, like the way he like just kept gabbing in a way that was annoying the Borg queen had me laughing. Like there's a fun 
light joviality to the movie, even though it's also got moments of like really disgusting body horror and uh, maybe more serious internal struggle, especially with the Picard storyline. So like, I think this is a good Star Trek movie. I just like the more I watch these, the more critical I am about like how they work individually without watching, you know, hundreds of hours of TV shows to like supplement the material. Um, I am thinking too, like, you know, this is a story about assimilation and like how your brain is like rewired to be part of this collective. Um, and I'm sure plenty has been written about how being a Star Trek fan is just like being part of the Borg. Oh, there uh, has to be. I'm sure by detractors and other haters. Well, okay. So like your brain, <laughs> your brain is rewired to think of everything through a Star Trek lens. Like every conversation we have, Star Trek comes up in one way or another. And when you pitched this episode, it was like, I want to talk about this for Thanksgiving in particular. And I Googled Star Trek Thanksgiving to figure out why this movie had like a Thanksgiving significance. And there were a couple hits that were like, you know, Star Trek had a history of releasing movies around Thanksgiving because one of them just happened to be a hit at that time. And they were like, I guess that's when you do it. Like families are in town and want to leave the house and go see a movie. Let's put out our Star Trek movies Thanksgiving week. So there's like a little bit of a pattern there, but you also get tons of articles with titles like why the Star Trek movies are a great Thanksgiving day watch. Why the search for Spock is the best Thanksgiving movie ever. A Thanksgiving look at great meals in Star Trek history. And I just want to say as someone who's not assimilated, um, that is insane to me that there's just so much content written around these two ideas that are completely separate just because everything is through a Star Trek lens. We don't, that's not us, is it? No, it's not us. <laughs> it's, not, it's not you specifically, but it, it does ring true to how y'all talk about all media, right? I guess, I guess maybe. Okay. Like we maybe that's too big of a swing. I, was I don't know. Say, we recognize people from Star Trek. We say, "Oh yeah, so and so from the classic sci-fi series." Like I can see where you're coming from, but I also think, in a way, that kind of misunderstands some of the Borg and its sinisterness. Which I I have a lot of thoughts on the Borg that we won't get into because it's so niche. And we are not doing a swamp trek. Hey, the, the Borg have a pretty good pitch, too. And they said that once you're assimilated, you'll enjoy it. So Exactly. My defenses but are up. I, I was going to say, I have a lot of uh, I have a lot of Borg thoughts. But anyway, I think the thing about the Borg is like they are sinister in like this very specific, like join this and like you lose everything that makes you yourself, which, you know, we live in a very individualistic culture so like that in and of itself is like terrifying but it's also like the forcible nature of like you have to that you know modern culture people do to a certain degree do but like it's through violence there is the assimilation aspect which is very you know neo-colonial etc etc yeah and this like join us for the pleasure of it, Cenobite stuff is really only offered to Data. That's not how it is yeah. for anybody else. Oh, okay. For that's that's you know the extent to which that's just a ploy on the part of the Borg Queen to like you know get re you know reattain access to the ship and finish what she's there to do, and the extent to which it might be true 
for data specifically as a unique life form that unlike you or I getting assimilated where we just become drones that are like endless, mindless, faceless, unnecessary, you know, replaceable cannon fodder. That's a different thing too. Look, I'm just trying to resist. (laughs) (laughs) But that's futile. That's futile, Brandon. I'm losing the fight. I enjoyed this movie. I I don't want to sound like I'm completely shitting on it. Oh, no, no. We're just... Yeah, no. It was just funny to me doing research on the Thanksgiving movie connection and how many results came up. None of them were about first contact in particular. And that is bananas to me because normally you can like, if you Google like Star Trek Halloween, the people will list like the same sort of eight scary-ish episodes. Yes. And I know exactly which ones. Yeah. It's like Cat's Paw, you know, Uh um, Night Terrors. The episode of Voyager where it's like Fear One and it's all the clowns. Yeah. Right. And then if you Google like Star Trek Christmas, you'll get results for like generations because there's a Christmas tree in one scene. To me, this Thanksgiving connection is purely in my mind and in my memory and in my nostalgia, which is that it was like Thanksgiving time when I was a child when we went and saw it. And for some reason in my mind, maybe it is because they often release them in theaters in November, but I also feel like basic cable stations often re-air this one in November. But that, because that would be like when I was home with my family and had access to cable and it seemed like it was always on whenever I was home for that particular holiday as well. It's like how um, MST3K has been assigned a Thanksgiving block and... Was it Twilight Zone gets a Christmas block? Yeah, Twilight Zone is New Year's every year. New Year's, okay. So like these things just sort of get, they like hit at the right time one year and are like wildly successful. And then people are like, well, I'm going to repeat that success and just do it every year. And, yeah. Uh, sometimes it becomes its own tradition. Yeah, there, it's it's nothing that's inherent to the film itself that makes it a Thanksgiving movie to me, other than like I just associate no. it with this season. Unless you want to take a really dark view of like what becoming um a loving member of a fa- of a family. Oh yeah. <laughs> uh huh. Well, it it can be about found family because that's kind of Star Trek generally. It's it's found family show a little bit. Well, the Borg are kind of the ultimate colonizers, right? Yes. You know, they, they come along, they eat up all of the resources, they take in everything that they think is of value, and then turn the rest of it into either ash or just, you know, raw material for the machine. The Borg are the ultimate colonizers. And so in that way, you know, since Thanksgiving is the colonialism holiday, maybe that's Maybe that's something. Is that something? Yeah. Uh, also, James Cromwell is as drunk as your worst uncle. Yeah, he is. Yeah. I mean, yeah. once again, I want to party with Zephram Cochran a little bit. Sounds like a good time. And maybe that's just like me being like, those Vulcans look like they're just having the weirdest time of their lives at the end. And I love a good weird time. Yeah, that's very Thanksgiving, right? Because it's like yeah. the the friends who weren't quite invited, but who showed up anyway, and they have weird dietary restrictions. Yeah, that's me. Doesn't he get <laughs> Troy drunk to feel her up too? I, I remember that. No, he weird. he just flirts with her a lot. She's trying to get information from him, so she's plying him with liquor. But once he gets drunk. She has a difficult time, uh, not a difficult time, but she has to like bat his hands away. Yes. It's, yeah, I, I'm not going to hold water for that. I'm not going to carry water for that, I guess. <laughs> I'm not going to defend it. 
I'm canceling Zephram Cochran. You're canceling Zephram Cochran. That's you know, he's fair, he's already born. He's living amongst us now. You oh, know shit. That. I'm canceling a baby. I'm 100% sure somebody has named their child it already. It's just oh, 100%. out there. Yeah. And see, that's the level of fandom that, Brandon, you should be concerned about. Right, right, right. <laughs> <laughs> we are harmless kooks, comparatively. <laughs> Mostly harmless kooks. Uh, I love the holodeck sequence in this one. This movie packs a lot of stuff in there to the point where it never feels its length to me, really. Because every time, you know, you have your, in your your general Star Trek episode, if you have any kind of action subplot, that's always the B plot because it has to take up the least amount of space so it's not expensive. And mm-hmm. this, they really went all out because you have them walking around outside. You have like the big attack from space scene in Montana where buildings are blowing up and people are getting thrown around. That's really impressive. You've got your like space battles and then you've got your like battles against the Borg inside the ship. But even that, like most movies would be content to have those. But this one's also like, hey, let's include like a 1920s uh detective noir holodeck sequence in the middle of this so that it gives Picard the chance to shoot a Tommy gun because it's the 90s, baby. I guess that's the part that like would really confuse someone who's never seen a Star Trek, right? Like yeah, yeah. them walking on the holodeck and Yes, yes, 100 percent I will give you that. Picard 100%. has like a whole like uh fanfic thing where he's in the gangster mall time. Oh yeah, he's got like this noir program he plays all the time. Yeah, it's a thing. <laughs> Yeah, the character is called Dixon Hill, and the only yeah. thing that you get in this scene is one of the gangsters says, "What's shaking, Dix?" And I do <laughs> recognize that, like that, divorced of context, this is the sequence that absolutely one hundred percent would make no sense to someone who'd never seen the show, even though they try to establish it by being like activating hollow deck on the panel. But man, yeah. it expects you to read that pretty fast. Yes, and if you're a person who like. It's the year of our Lord, 2023, and you watch a movie with your phone in your hand at all times. You're not going to get that. So because um, earlier we mentioned all the interior scenes, I freaking love the interiors in this movie because they're all hokey, classic, old sci-fi looking. Because they have like the little like Tesla coils going on in the background of like Data's head. And it's just like somebody just had the time of their lives like building this stuff and like scavenging around like thrift stores to find, you know, the most ridiculous looking like this looks like it came off the set of like a 50s sci-fi movie shit. And oh, it's so wonderful. And I I just thought we had not um talked about that enough i think that's what speaks to me about this movie is that like old school space exploration look to it Mm -hmm. Um, and especially like the gel lights are very 1990s in a way that like yes triggers my nostalgia in a way i cannot help yeah i i guess i'll if i have a hot take it's like the voyage home is the one star trek movie i've really enjoyed from this batch that we've watched i would say this is probably my second favorite past that and i know wrath of khan is supposed to be the great one, but I don't know. This meant more to me and I will remember more of it than I remember of wrath of Khan just yeah. because of the way it looked. Yeah. I'll, I'll also say Ali, to your point, I don't know. Did y'all watch any part of the credits of this movie? Did y'all let it play? Uh, 
I don't remember. I don't think I did. No. We I'm really bad about you doing know. That. Sorry. When the movie came to an end, it just kind of continued to play as you know we started to talk about it. And if you watch the credits of this movie, there are so few names. It's actually really astonishing to like watch just the beginning of these credits and be like, holy shit, look how few people it used to take to mm-hmm. make like a great movie, like a genuinely great movie. Or, you know, at least good, depending on your feelings. I don't mean to continue to, like, push that button. I'm not trying to editorialize on this particular segment. But, like, <laughs> you know, that this movie was made by, like, I don't know, a few dozen people. 50 to 100, maybe. And now, when you watch a movie that is not that does not look as good at this, as this, which is not as well made as this is, which is not as rewarding as this one is, and it takes, like, a hundred thousand people and like the credits are just wall-to-wall names you know for something like marvel or you know star wars or something like that like the number of people that are involved because of the amount of like computer production and uh, there is something that's much more tactile about the effects in this movie where you can see the love you can see that this wasn't something that took like a thousand people some time to do it was something that four people who really loved their work did and I think that that's crossing over into what you were talking about, Allie, with people like really dressing these sets the same way. Yeah, like the 1950s sci-fi aesthetic of it all. I really like the Enterprise-y. I'm, you know, I'm disappointed we don't get to see more of it. And if you want to see more of it, you have to watch two terrible movies. Yeah, I'm really, I'm a bad Star Trek fan in that I don't really care about the names of the ships. but i do care about old school sci-fi and so i'm just like oh yes please more of these ridiculous like useless glowing things in the backgrounds of the set please oh yeah lots of greats you know colored gels behind greats i really like the horror elements here too we haven't really talked much about that but like those early sequences where those two like engineers are just like working together and then one of them goes into the oh, tube yeah. and then uh-huh. you know the other the one other goes one looking for him alert security yeah. have y'all seen mario bava's planet of the vampires oh, you were going I to make us watch one. it before we did yeah. life force and then we yeah. never did it's very influential on really scott's alien Mm-hmm. but um also i thought about it a lot during this because it is like a retro space vampire movie i mean because it's italian it's got kind of its own weird internal logic where the vampirism quote-unquote is not as physiological as the Borgar. like it's very um it's almost like space ghosts <laughs> like but it's very beautiful and very uh intense color gels as you would expect in a baba film um maybe a little slow and boring but i think a beautiful art object might be something worth watching at some point. I do love a good Bava. I want to say, I think Data looks awful in all of the movies. Kat brought this up earlier. She's right. I want to I want to go ahead and make my point about that here as well. He's got kind of like a sparkle to him in a way that a lot yeah. of like concealer does. It's like a very specific makeup sparkle. Yeah. He's very twinkly. I understand that probably just like the plain white makeup that they gave him on the show probably was not meant to hold up to like film you know like that's i have no doubt that it was purely a technical consideration as to why they changed his makeup but it really like 
what they what I assume they had to do was, you know, on the show, it's just like like a blank white face. They probably did screen tests of it for generations where it looks the worst. He he looks better in this one than he did in generations, but where in order to make it pick up better on film, so it didn't just look like a Michael Myers mask, they had to give it like some grit. And it looks like shit. I'm gonna go ahead and say that for 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 sure. Is that the note you want to leave off of? <laughs> it doesn't have to be the note where we leave off. You might not talk about a Star Trek movie for another full year. And you want to talk about how shitty data looks on the big screen? Um, I mean, as your final goodbye? I mean... I, I, I'll, I will say that uh, Gates McFadden, who plays Crusher, I, she looks great in this movie. In fact, whenever I met her and got her autograph a couple months ago, I picked a headshot from this movie as the one for her to sign, because this is, I think, where I love her the most, even though they give her very little to do. Yeah. I like that Jonathan Frakes didn't, like, overpower his own character either. Like, yeah, yeah. He's around without much to do either. But he still does basic Riker shit. I'm sorry. I'm not a big Riker fan. Boo. Boo. Okay, go on. He could have made this more of a vanity project where he, he like made the story about himself or like featured himself or hammed it up a little more than he does. He he could have, but he's not he's not old Bill. Yeah. And right. the irony of that is that, you know, again, not to get into TV stuff, but originally the concept for the next generation was that he would be the more Kirk like character because they would send him down to do the planet stuff and Patrick Stewart, Picard would be up on the ship doing like the captainy stuff. So he has more of like Kirk's like, you know, uh, lady killer, uh, late before he looks type characterization. And we're seeing him at the end of like his development into more of a um, responsible person, I guess. He's been on my mind a lot lately because I have a coworker who asks me questions all day. And they're kind of random. Like sometimes yes. it has to do with Rick. Oh. <laughs> the other times it has to do with like, just whatever she happens to be thinking about that exact moment. And whenever she does it too much, I end up playing the super cut of him on, what is it? Uh-huh. Believe it or not or whatever. Yes. Yeah. How much is the right time to tip? Have you ever drunk a <laughs> bottle of wine that was over 30 years old? Have you ever been to a flea market? Have you ever written your name in wet concrete? Have you ever walked out of a mall into a huge parking area and realized you'd forgotten where you parked your car? Ever go on mountain biking? What do you want to be when you grow up? What's the right tip? Have you called a plumber to your home lately? How superstitious are you? How much money would it take to make you spend a night in a cemetery? Would you display this as a trophy? Do you have a pet? Do you have a sweet tooth? Do you believe in the power of a curse? Have you had your hearing tested lately? Planning a trip soon? Can you remember the tallest man you've ever seen? Do you love to go a-wandering beneath the clear blue sky? Have you noticed what big stars real estate agents have become? Are you careful with your personal records? Does your computer ever seem to have a mind of its own? Beautiful stuff. Yes. Never too far from my mind. Well, I am breaking another rule next episode. And I guess the rule I'm saying we broke this episode was we mostly talked about TV. I thought we did a good job keeping it on I'm the movie. Exaggerating for comic effect here. Okay. Okay. Next episode is episode 200 of the Swamplex podcast. And our one rule on this show is that we do not do repeat movies. We try not to double dip. Next episode, we are going to cover films that have been discussed before in the first 199 episodes of the show. Mostly it's stuff that Brittany and James were not around to talk about. Um, I have been around for all of them, so I had to bend the rules a little bit for that as well. I picked um, something from their best of the year lists that we never talked about in full before. 
which is Dolomite is my name, which you can watch on Netflix. So uh, come around for that celebration of a milestone in the show. How do you end these? You say live long and prosper? Yeah, live long and prosper. Peace and long life. And resist assimilation. <laughs>